Uh, this morning, I just want to kind of remind you of where you've been, where we've been. The first week, uh, we talked, I said this, I said, hey, the hope of our nation, this is my opinion, the hope of our, our nation lies in the person of Jesus and in a united church, specifically a united church empowered by God's spirit, right? So the hope of our nation. So all the people like, oh my gosh, our, 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 our nation, I mean, we're just, we're just in a difficult place. It's overwhelming. There's just no hope. And I would simply say, hey, no, I believe that there is hope in the person of Jesus and in the united church empowered by God's spirit. And I, I gave you some homework two weeks ago to kind of process through where you are uh, in that and of being a united part of the church. Last week, Jeremy Morris was here from Stonebridge Church. And Jeremy, basically, long story short, said, hey, unity in the church begins with allegiance, right? Unity in the church begins with allegiance, to Jesus, right? He is the primary allegiance. He is the priority. He read from Luke 10 that said, hey, if you're going to follow me and be my disciple, you have to hate your mother and hate your father, that type of thing, right? And the whole point of getting at it was, it was a sense of the idea of allegiance, like who my priority is, not literally like emotionally hating people, right? As if wishing they were dead, but saying in comparison, I give my primary allegiance to Jesus and I have a secondary allegiance, but it's always a distant second compared to our primary allegiance to Jesus. And so the idea for us, the language of kingdom, kingdom of God before our allegiance to any nation, person, whatever it may be, right? We are more kingdom than American. That's kind of the mindset that he gave. And so this picture is saying the kingdom of God, our allegiance to the king, to the Lord of the kingdom comes first. And that's where unity begins. We can't have unity unless we have all of our primary allegiance geared towards and focused on Jesus first. And so, so let me just say it this way, summed up. And this is something I hope that you believe. I believe unity matters. Right? This is very simple. I believe that unity matters. If you take anything from the message today, kids, if you're taking notes and you're going to ask your parents, like, what did you talk about today with the pastor? You're like, well, unity matters, mom, right? It's like, unity matters. Or you write it down. And here's what I would say unity matters in a biblical way, right? We're going to talk about the Bible here in a second. But let's just be honest. Intuitively, we all understand that unity just practically matters. In the context of, of where you work, in your family, and the things that you're doing on the battlefield, right? Literal, literal battlefield or armed forces or on the football field or whatever it may be. And like a, that unity matters. Several weeks ago, this is, a, this is a silly story to make this point, but several weeks ago, Sarah and Anna Catherine and I, we were at Salt and Pepper doing dinner one night, right? And it was super hot, and we're sitting out there, and we're probably making fun of Randall, what we do when she's not around, right? And all of a sudden, we hear a loud thud, and, I, and a loud thud, and I was like, ooh, and like, I sound like a person. So I got up and walked in the corner, and sure enough, this very large, um, kind of like a man probably in his mid-60s, was just laying on the ground face up, right? And, and, and so just quickly, he was okay. He was okay. He was trying to walk into salt and pepper and there was a area where his, his, his toe hit the curb. He kind of stumbled, went straight into the window and then fell right back, right? I know it's terrible. It's kind of funny looking back on it. But anyway, so, but he was fine. He was fine. Okay. But he's laying on the ground. Janine's like, Oh my God, right? No, but it's like he was fine. 
But he was dazed and confused and he was hurting. And so he's laying there and really more than anything, he's just embarrassed, right? So in the moment, all of a sudden, four people descend on him. It was a white guy who looks very different than me. I'm just saying, right? We have a, a woman walks up. We have a black man who walks up and then Steve Hambricks walks up. And I don't know what my girls are doing, like sitting over there, hanging out, drinking water. Thanks for the help, sir. All right. So anyway, so we're sitting there, right? We're sitting there and we start talking to him. We find out very quickly he's okay. He's embarrassed. But we talked to him. It's like he said, I, I can't get myself up. And I'm looking at him going, I'm not getting him up either. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm strong, but he's a big man, right? And so we sit there. All of a sudden, we kind of do the nod. Look and say, you got it? You got it? Yeah. And we literally all, without even speaking, we know what to do. We unify. We walk over. We get shoulder and shoulder. And then this guy goes, one, two, three. And all four of us pick him up put him onto his feet. I literally like dust him off, not his butt. That'd be awkward, right? I'm dusting off his back and his arms, right? Where he's laying on the ground and I take care of it, right? And then he kind of laughs and he kind of walks to his car and the four of us left standing there. And we had that moment of like, yeah, we did that, right? You don't get that. That moment like, we just did that. We just worked together. We kind of get the head nod, little fist pump right here. We're like, feeling good, feeling good. Okay. And with that like awkward moment, like, Okay, bye, right? Instead of we go back to the table. And so the point for me is this. I'm sitting here looking at that going first and foremost. I, I just love the unity that it took. We didn't talk. We didn't communicate. We had a unified purpose for why we were there in that moment. It was to help this guy put him back onto his feet and practically take care of him. That's what he needed. We were unified around a common cause. And later I thought about it going, I have a, I have a feeling that out of the four of us, right, this white man who looked very different than me, I'll just let your mind go where you want it to go, this woman right here, and a black man, I guarantee you, if we had said in advance, hey, can we work together, are our, our, our ideologies the same? Do we have the same convictions around this, this, and this? Because we can't work together if we're not thinking the same. No, we didn't take we didn't take that into account. What mattered was the need at hand. And someone in the moment who needed help, he needed to be saved in the moment. Because he would have just laid there on his back like this for who knows how long and not gotten himself up. And so in that moment, you see unity mattered just in a super practical sense without taking into account all the things that probably divided us around ideologies and maybe even theology. Unity biblically matters, but you understand that unity very, very practically matters in the world in which we live. So with that in mind this morning, the focus of our, the focus scripture in this season, you can put up on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, right? This is the urgency. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you perfectly, that you be perfectly united in mind, and in thought, I want to break this, this this verse down this morning, looking at some verses before it and some verses after it. And the first takeaway that I want to have this morning is that division came from blessing. Division in the in the church in Corinth came out of 
blessing. I'm going to unpack that for us. Let me begin by just giving, like by looking at Paul's language around the blessing that was happening in the church at Corinth. It says this, verse 4 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. This is right before the verse I just read. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, as a spiritual father, is just living in thankfulness for the ones that he loves right here. He says, for in him, in Christ, you, this is the Powerful verse. You powerful verse. You've been enriched in every way. It's powerful. Speaks to blessing. God pouring Himself out. You've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Right? God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So basically, we can tell that the work of God has happened in you because of the testimony of how powerful you are in speech and in knowledge and wisdom. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Do you see they're walking in blessing? They've been enriched in every single way in the moment, right? With, with the ability to speak to communicate the gospel to people who are around them. They're able to proclaim a knowledge and a wisdom really probably beyond their own knowledge. Remember when the Pharisees said, we can tell that these men have been with Jesus as they proclaim the gospel earlier on in Acts, right? And here says they're not lacking any spiritual gift. The church of Corinth has every gift moving in power, nothing is lacking. They have every single one of them, so much so that we get our theology around the gift of tongues and prophecy and the interpretation of tongues from 1 Corinthians because it just wasn't really anywhere else. And so Paul had to write about it because nothing had ever been written because all the gifts were flowing. It's powerful to see. So we see that Corinth is richly and powerfully blessed. At the same time, Corinth is not a city where suffering or where persecution is affecting the daily life of the church. This is super important. Almost in every single one of the letters that Paul writes to Galatians or Ephesians or the Philippians or Colossians or First and Second Thessalonians or First and Second Timothy, right? There is some type of persecution that is a part of the letter that he's having to address because as being a Christian in that city, it was difficult because they were literally their lives were being threatened. But in Corinth, you don't really have that happening. They really have a great relationship with those who are outside of the church. And in that, not all of them, but many of them are actually financially fairly well off. They're doing well. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They talk about uh, the Lord's Supper and kind of rules around it that many of them are like kind of a high class, uh, fairly, uh, fairly well to do, fairly well off financially. Why is this important to our conversation? Because when I look at Corinth, there is something about Corinth that looks very similar to how I see America. Like this idea of like we're, we're, not, really, we're not really suffering or experiencing any kind of level of biblical persecution whatsoever. Someone threatening a mask is not biblical persecution, right? It just isn't, okay? It's just not. This idea of persecution is that literally your life is threatened and you may not be able to live tomorrow or even be a Christian. And if you are kind of like in Afghanistan right now, either you proclaim the gospel and you get killed or you hide. 
That's what you see in most of the biblical persecution stories in the Bible. That's not happening in Corinth. They're able to live in their freedoms like we are in America. They're able to say, hey, this is kind of how we're living. Like, that's great for you, right? Highly religious town. They kind of celebrate all these religions. And it's, they're, they're just like, it's great. They're kind of living their life. And so nothing's difficult for them. And so in this, what you find is they're richly blessed, as we are in America, top 1% of the entire world, because we have two cars, we have a roof over our head, and food to eat on our table. So you represent the rich people top one percent in the world you were blessed socioeconomically you're all blessed those of you who have one car i'm so sorry so you're blessed right you're blessed you are in the top percent you're not suffering persecution you can go outside right now and rail on the government for your religious freedoms and not feel threatened for your life just like we're experiencing in corinth In this, in the comfort, this is on the screen, in the comfort of their blessings, they now have space to focus on non-essentials, rivalry, and competition. Let me walk you through this. This this is like Bible history 101. When you do any kind of biblical history from Old Testament all the way through, you you see a cycle. It's very evident. It's evident through every generation. Here's here's, here's Here's the cycle. You begin with the blessing of the Lord on his children whom he loves. And then in their blessing, they get comfortable. And in their comfort, they begin to look other places because they're just so bored with life. And so then they fall into sin. And then in falling into their sin in this cycle, God comes in his great love and rebukes them and calls them to repentance, but they still remain in their sin, right? Remaining in their division, remaining in their rivalry, remaining in their competition. So all of a sudden, God says, I love you too much to leave you there. So he, he, he literally comes and he disciplines them. You see it. That's what happened with Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were taken into captivity because of their sin. And in their sin, all of a sudden, what do they do? They cry out to God because now they have this unified cause that they're behind trying to get salvation for themselves. So they cry out to God, and God leaves them there for a moment to kind of wake them up. And in that, all of a sudden, there's repentance that leads to then salvation. And all of a sudden, things are great again. And then in their blessing of God's breakthrough in their life, they get to a place of comfort again, and then into sin, and then in their sin, they get bored, and they give themselves over, and it's just a cycle again and again. Here's the reason we know this, because Jesus had to come, because we were caught in our cycle. The point is this, in the comfort of our blessings, we have the space to fall into sin and to rivalry. Here's the deal. If someone hasn't eaten in 21 days, and I, so Taylor has not eaten in 21 days, I say, Taylor, what are you thinking about? He's like, I'm thinking about a hamburger, right? Someone's eating in 21 days, right? They're focused on this need that they have, this cause to get food. They're focused on it. You talk to someone who has all the blessings in the world and ask them what they're thinking about, there is a myriad of options. 
And so the idea for us is the division for them came from their blessing because they didn't have a unified cause of allegiance to the kingdom of God and they allowed the kingdom of the world to invade them and then all of a sudden division and rivalry and competition crept in and they let the talking heads tell them what to believe. We're going to look at that here in a second. And they bought into and became more Roman than Christian and all of a sudden they're in danger and God's trying to put them in a cycle of repentance and correction so that they will right the ship. And so we have to ask ourselves, you're all comfortable in living a life of extensive blessing. Where, maybe, have you lost sight of primary allegiance and cause of God to seek and to save that which is lost, to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, and then to sacrificially humble yourselves and love your neighbor who's dying and going to hell, or living in fear and anxiety, or living in need of healing, or maybe spiritual deliverance, but we're so caught up in rivalries and factions and parties, we've missed the kingdom and our primary allegiance. Division came from blessing. I'm just telling you, all of us are ripe in our comfort and our blessing to lose sight of the primary essential. So Paul's getting at. So Paul then comes along and says, we've got to correct this, y'all. got to correct this. And so he comes in the moment and he basically says, guys, we can't. Listen, you're in danger because you have parties or factions not unity. You have parties or teams or factions, a group of people, and you don't have unity. You have division in the context of these parties or factions and not unity. In fact, the purpose of Paul's writing, the purpose of Paul's writing is based on the fact that the church in Corinth is literally broken into fours. Right? 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%. Look at it. It says, verse 12, super practical. One of you says, I follow Paul. One of you says, another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Broken into fours. Quarter of the church, right, is in teams. you got a quarter over here, quarter here, quarter here, quarter here, and quarter here. Literally, Corinth's aspirations is really important to know. Corinth is a really young city. It's basically less than 100 years old. It was present. It got demolished. The Roman emperor then built it back up. And so here's what you have. It's a young city who doesn't have an identity yet, but they desire to be an equal with Rome. And so in a place that's looking for an identity, then they become like an exaggerated, more competitive version of Rome. And what we see then in Corinth here in this story are three values celebrated in Roman culture that is now like extremely exaggerated in Corinth with their desire to compete and make a name for themselves. The three things that we see are self-promotion. Self-promotion, rivalries around speakers or orators or communicators. We'll come back to that point here in a second. And then religious zeal. There's no separation of church and state in Corinth. Like everything is attached to your spirituality. Everything that you do is around it. The more that you make a name for yourself, 
the better it is spiritually in the way that the, the, the Roman emperor cult, the more that you are liked by the Caesar who is God. My point is you have here self-promotion, rivalries around speakers, and with this zeal, and as a young city man, they are going hard after these things. This specific cultural rivalry named here, these rivalries around speaker and orators and communicators, hear this, it's not much different than our sports teams today. It's not. Not much different than our sports teams today. So here in Corinth, you had these orators. Orators are basically like these people who were looked up to because those who could communicate, who could orate, and who would speak, they literally get a team of people around them. And so let's say Sarah and I are going head-to-head as speakers and orators. If you're on my team, you come and get behind me, and you're cheering me on. You've got chance for Steve, 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 right? Over here for Sarah, you got chance for Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. And I make a point, you're like, Oh, right, whatever it may be, just like you do in sports, right? Or just like we do in politics when we have these parties and these rivalries, these people who are competitive with one another. And so you have that happening in the church and you literally have, could you imagine, let's say there were four speakers at Vintage and every single time, like a quarter of the church was like on Jay's side and Jay was the communicator and Jay gets up to speak and you're like, yeah, woo, woo. Take that. Man, he's so much better than you, Steve. Whatever it is. Like, that's what it's like in the church. It's silly. But it's what's happening. And they celebrated this in Corinth. It was a value of the Roman culture. They literally circled themselves around a communicator. They listened to what that communicator said, got on his team, and then made that the value of their life at the expense of relationship with other people. I don't know if you ever see that with media today and people picking a favorite and then getting on the side of that guy and cheering him on at the expense of others. I'm sure you've never seen that, right? So that's what's happening in Corinth here, but in a very spiritual sense, a very religious sense, dangerous. And the idea is you wanted to pick the best and most influential speaker to make you look better, self-promotion, And here it is in the vein of the church, so it's about religious zeal. The picture is clear. This is important. The Corinthian church had allowed a competitive, self-promoting, rivalry-producing culture to invite and to invade its rank from the Roman culture. And Paul, man, he just wasn't having it. They'd allowed it to overtake them. The point that division in the church was accepted and it was probably even celebrated this is important. I want you all to hear this phrase. If you've kind of zoned out, this is where we get to zone back in to just help you with these moments. The Corinthian church was blind to how their culture had impacted them and caused them to lose primary allegiance. I'm going to say this. This is very direct. But I'm under the conviction that every single person in this room, whether you know it or not, has been negatively impacted and you're more cultural in some area and some thought than you even realize, just like them. Why? Because in our extreme comfort and blessing and listening to these places without having opposition that leads us to primary allegiance to some place or a primary need to lift someone up off of their feet, we give ourselves to all sorts of ideas and thoughts and thinking and we find ourselves being pulled in some way without even knowing it. And so they were blind. We, we need to understand what's impacting us. They've become more Roman than Christian. 
nationalism had eclipsed the kingdom. Jeremy said last week that we become more American than Christian. I wonder if for us we can quote more of the Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, and our own laws for self-freedom than we can the Bible itself. I just wonder. Just a question I'm wondering. Where have we allowed our orators, our speakers, talking heads to divide us as the church into factions, into teams, into parties, instead of just being shaped for the kingdom purpose that we've been designed for? Paul, in the moment, is hoping to correct them. He loves them too much to leave them there. The Corinthian church, again, had fallen into the learned behavior. It's a learned behavior of competing against one another, arguing over who was best or smarter or right or more gifted. They formed factions around their favorite communicator. Again, division was expected and probably even celebrated. For Paul, and hear this, this is super, how I, how I worded this is super important. For Paul, there was no place in the kingdom for parties and factions to be accepted as a means for division in the church. Super important. There was no place in the kingdom for Paul for parties or factions to be accepted as a means for causing division in the church. If a party I'm a part of causes division for me in the body of Christ, then I would say we're in sin. I'm just saying. Now, third piece is unity, not uniformity. Super important language here. Unity, not uniformity. I'm going to go back and read this verse, kind of make it a little more uh, just uh, simple. I appeal to you, agree with one another in what you say. This is verse 10 again. It's not on the screen, I don't think, but it's read to you. I appeal to you, agree with one another in what you say. And there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. What is this talking about here? Perfectly united in mind and in thought. I don't think it's uniformity as in we think the same, look the same, and act the same. I think he's saying in the context of kingdom essentials about being a person who recognizes the need of others trumps the actual pieces out here we could be divided in. We major on the essentials and give ourselves to it and that's what we communicate jesus christ alone is lord he is the only way to get to heaven it's by the name of jesus that all listen every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is lord it's only the power of jesus that breakthrough healing and restoration can occur as we pray and believe the essentials and in the non-essentials, we're not looking for, there's unity without uniformity then. Here's how Augustine said it, and he's credited with saying it. Some people debate whether he did, but let's just say for the sake of this conversation, Augustine said this on the screen. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, there's the freedom and the liberty to discuss and not have agreement, agree to disagree on some things, but in all things, charity. Kindness, grace, mercy. Read it again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. The key in unity is understanding, again, 
Unity is not uniformity. Again, uniformity thinks and speaks to homogeneous groups that think the same, act the same, right? And if you don't think the same, you are ostracized and kicked out, right? We will never have uniformity. People have been designed by God to process life and actions differently to intentionally not have uniformity. How do we know this? Well, let's look at Ephesians. Ephesians comes in and talks about, hey, these motivational gifts, what we call the fivefold ministry. Some are called to be apostles. Some are called to be prophets. Some are called to be evangelists. Some are called to be shepherds. And some are called to be teachers. What those, all those gifts are is a lens by which you have a perspective of everything going on in life. So when a situation occurs, we can just use Afghanistan as an example, right? It's a major one. We're all looking at it in the news. An, ap- an apostolic person looks at this and looks to the future and says, how can we make this get, listen, how can we make this better by looking to the future and looking forward and setting something right? Prophets look and go, hey, this is right and wrong. We need to fix this. Evangelists go, my gosh, look at these people who are hurting over here. We need to go to them and we need to save them. That's the only thing I can think about. Shepherds are over here going, oh my gosh, I'm just so broken for them. I've got to care for them. I've got to give myself and love on them. And teachers are going, going, let me talk about next time what you need to be doing when you pull out of a country, right? They're looking at it very unemotionally, just teaching about it. So that's the idea. It's like God literally designed us to not have uniformity while living in utter unity. If you don't believe in unity without uniformity, then I think your marriage is struggling. Because I don't know about you, but in my marriage, we don't have uniformity of thought on a lot of things. Here's a story about Randall and I. So Randall and I have very different, like going to sleep, um, agendas, right? Like that time to go to sleep, we have like going to sleep rituals. Ours are very different. Let me tell you what mine is. Mine is this. We've been going through the day. It's about 11 o'clock at night. I'm super tired, super unmotivated. So I do this. I drag my, listen, I, I at least turn off some lights and make sure the dog's been put outside to use the bathroom, bring him back in. And I go into my room, put my PJs on. I go brush my teeth, right? Take care of business. And then I come in and I lay in bed and I look to see if Randall's there. So if her, she's not there, I turn my light off and I leave her light on because she's a night owl and stays up. And I think I'm a good husband doing that, right? That's what I I do okay so one night i've gone through my ritual i'm about to turn my lights off and i hear this from the other room <sighs> like, oh that's a white sigh from my wife i wonder if that's directed at me so i'm just laying there sweating all of a sudden with even more exasperated tones like <sighs> Like, that was direct, definitely directed towards me, right? So I get up and I walk out to the door. I look at my wife over here in the kitchen because here's my, here's my wife's going to bed ritual. Hey, it's time to go to bed. She's like, fantastic. She goes to the laundry room for some reason to make sure that all the laundry's done, all of everything's put into the dryer, everything else is folded for some reason. It can be done tomorrow, I'm saying, but she's folding it. Then she comes back into the kitchen. She looks into the back, looks into the kitchen. She looks into the sink because here's the thing. In her mind, it's impossible to go to bed if there's a single dirty dish sitting there in the sink so she has to take care of that too so what i walk up to is i literally i'm looking in and i see her washing dishes while i'm in my pjs and i said hey babe what are you doing it's an obvious question with an answer that's obvious she's like 
seriously? And I'm like, babe, seriously, like, do you want my help? She's like, seriously. I'm like, listen, is this a learning moment for my wife? If you want my help, you should just ask me, right? This is the moment of expectations and unspoken expectations. I just want to help her understand how marriage works in that, right? She's like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding. You know what I do every single night. Blah, 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 goes off and on. And so I just kind of like laugh. I'm a little frustrated because I'm super tired. And I go over and start, I start just drying the dishes, right? Now here's the funny thing about it. This is super important. We do not have uniformity on our going to bed ritual and we still don't. I think her way is idiotic. I mean, I think it's crazy. I just don't agree with it, right? And then over here, I think mine's completely logical. But here's the thing. In the moment, we didn't go to bed disunified. Because here's the thing. We know dishes should never cause disunity in our marriage. Our marriage was priority. Our relationship with one another was not worth a dirty dish and a messed up disagreement on our sleep schedule. Marriage was the thing we're fighting for. Health in our marriage is our priority as it relates to our relationship. And we will never have uniformity in our going to bed ritual because I'm never going to fold a single shirt in my life to go to bed. Right? It's like I just want to lay in bed. Uniformity and unity are not the same thing. Unity, and here's a list of things, and then we're going to get to a primary point. Uniformity, and this is things you can take notes on. Uniformity requires space for differing of opinion. Requires space. True unity allows for a differing of opinion. Unity requires space for humble Disagreement. Unity requires space for healthy conflict and debate that might even get loud sometimes. Unity requires space for commitment to not break relationship with those God has placed me and family with. Randall and I did not go to a bed with agreement. We did not have uniformity, but we had unity because of the primary reality that we were called to have a healthy marriage and to give ourselves to it. Here's the phrase on the screen. Unity without conformity demands spiritual maturity. This is super important, this sentence. It's very intentional for me. It demands the ability to honor my non-essential convictions while also honoring Yours and others' non-essential essential convictions. In this moment, I had a non-essential conviction of my sleep ritual. Randall had a non-essential, as in it's not regarding the kingdom. We're not going to get to heaven and talk about our sleep schedules with Jesus and ask who was right and who was wrong in that. Right? So we're never going to talk about it ever again in heaven. It's not eternal in nature. It's therefore it's not essential. Right? But I need to have, but there's recognizing right now, like, I have, that's a right, it's good to have a conviction around my non-essentials, while I also honor your non-essential convictions also. So let's practice this unity without uniformity thing this morning. It's unfortunate because we can't have necessarily a dialogue about this, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw out a possible list of non-essentials in my mind I see them as non-essentials that the church has divided over even in this season. And I see it as a non-essential list. I'm looking back at you saying, 
and you may have a differing list. You may not have uniformity on this list. And hey, that's okay. We'll agree to disagree on that. I'm just behind here talking about my possible list of non-essentials. Okay? That's all we're doing. So don't leave the church over what I'm about to say. Don't send me a hate email with like, because I'm not even going to give you my opinions on any of these things. I'm just going to say, here's some non, I just, my opinions, they're non-essentials to the kingdom, okay? Let me go down my list right here. Number one, we talked about it for the first two weeks, the same the third week, masks, right? I see those are non-essentials and something that the church should never be divided on. Number two, non-essential, style of baptism. Whether you get sprinkled, poured on, or dunked, right? The church is divided over these, created whole denominations around this very, very issue. Look at it and go, I just think it's a non-issue, it's a non-essential. I could make my very clear historical argument for this, but I'm getting, it's like, I just don't see it. I see it as non-essential to the kingdom of God and people coming to salvation, right? Here's another non-essential, women in the church, I say this is a non-essential. I don't think it's an issue we should divide over two words. You probably don't even know, but it's a, these are massive words in theological circles for people who make it divisive. Complementarian versus egalitarian. These are two massive words. Just go Google Beth Moore. How many of you ever done a Beth Moore study? She's fantastic. Just go Google her and begin to read some things around this, right? I don't think this is, I think it's a non-essential. The church should never be divided over. We may have strong opinions in all of these. They should never divide us. Let me throw out some other words here. There's a phrase for you, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is a phrase. It's a phrase that no one should ever in the church, we can have opinions on, strong convictions around different things around BLM, but it should never be something that the outsiders, non-Christians, those who don't know Jesus should look at two Christians fighting over a phrase that's true because black lives do matter, right? Like we should never see us living with such divisiveness and vitriol, right? It's a non-essential. We're not going to be talking about it in heaven because everybody in heaven is like, yes, of course, black lives matter. Why are you arguing over a phrase that's true? Or how about this? Vaccines. Vaxxers and non-vax. Do you have friends who are online on both sides of this just hurling stones? It's a non-essential. Doesn't lead to salvation. Doesn't cause you to lose your salvation on either side. What if I said, well, are you vaxxed? Because if you're not, if you're vaxxed, and I'm not going to help you lift the sky up off the ground. Sorry, man. That's what we do every day. We get in our arguments and our camps around issues that are non-essential, and we stop helping people. Let me throw out here's another one: immigration. Immigration. Like, is it really something that people get and they get all bit out of shape over this? I can stand on both sides of this camp and make very biblical arguments on both sides. I've got one camp I prefer to stand in, but I can make it for both. So I can see both sides. How about these two names? I'm just going to say, and people who get around these names, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Are you, with anyone in your family, divided over one of these two names? Are you divided with anyone over these two names, maybe in the body of Christ, in a small group of people that you call Christians? Let me tell you, when you get to heaven, God's going to say, why did you do that? Why don't you just unify around my name? 
How about these two phrases? I'll give you three phrases. Just boom, boom, boom. Critical race theory, being woke, and social justice. Seriously? People in the church are like, boom, 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 and like dividing and stopping relationship with people over, over a theory that's been taught for a long time, over a, two phrases that have changed definitions three times in the last two years, and you're dividing over these things and stopping to talk to people? Social justice was coined over 500 years ago by Thomas A. Kempis. Let me tell you something. It meant something different for him than it does in our politically charged environment today. And we're dividing over it. I'm just saying. So I'm getting really passionate. That didn't happen at the first service. So I'm not angry at all. I'm not angry. I can just tell I'm a little energized. I'm a little, I'm a little energized by this, right? Thank you, Uh, but I'm going to skip back a bit. We'll see. All right. So all of these, but here's the point about all of these. All of these, listen, super important. All of these are of utmost importance. They are. Like, I'm not discrediting any of them, right? What I'm getting at is, hey, let's keep the essential, the essential. The non-essentials, let's argue about them with grace and mercy and love. Let's talk about them. Let's discuss them. Let's have opinions on them. Remember, let's honor our non-essential conviction as I honor your your conviction around non-essentials. And let's be united around the primary. And essentials, unity. Non-essentials, liberty. In all things. I mean, if you just embrace this one phrase, in all things, charity. Listen, I'm not telling you to go make the world do this. I'm telling you, you talk yourself and your conviction into it yourself. John Wesley says something along the lines, just give me 100 people who love nothing else but Jesus. Let me set them on fire to burn so the world can see them and the world will change. Terrible paraphrase, that's basically what he said. What if... The 200 and something, 300 something people, who knows how people can invent it anymore, right? Let's just say all of a sudden we decided to get behind this and show charity and essentials, man, and, and essentials, unity, and non-essential liberty. What would happen? Our community would change. So our response, I'm going to give two things. I'm just going to sum these up pretty quickly. Our biblical response to one another, a biblical response then in this, what does it look like? I believe it's summed up in this phrase from James 1.19. In all things, in an essentials and non-essentials and everything, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and be slow to anger. I will say it again. Be Quick to listen, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. Hey, Randall, Sarah, do me a favor real quick. Will you text uh, your daughter, sister, and tell her I'm preaching? I can't answer her text right now. Just real quick. Thank you. So I'll be done in about 10 minutes. Super important. Texas came through. She's fine, but I need to talk to her in 15 minutes. All right. So be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and be slow to to anger. James 1.19. It's a defining mark that should define every single relationship that we are in. And if we embraced this, everything would change. I'll never forget I was reading a book several, many, many, I mean, probably 25, maybe 
how old am I, 47, so maybe about 20 years, 25 years ago, we 25 years ago, reading a book my mom had bought called Taking Our Cities for God by John Dawson, one of the founders of YWAM Youth with a Mission. And he tells the story, and I paraphrase the story, I lost the book, and I haven't seen it in forever, but I remember the story, it's so profound to me. He says, we were in a, in a metropolitan, very well-to-do, Spanish-speaking city, where I mean, it's a very prideful people. And so we were doing ministry. And so every day we do what we always do. We'd go down to the street corner and we'd begin to pray. We'd begin to worship. And then a crowd would fall and we'd just proclaim the gospel. And so for three days we did this and absolutely nothing was happening. He says, so after that third day, we were a little, you know, a little disillusioned, disheartened. So we came back and just began to pray, God, what do we do? What do we do? And there was something super clear, but we knew we were supposed to go back the next day. So the next day we went back with our group of, of college students, right? I don't know how many there were. So let's say there, let's say for the store, there are 25 to 30 kids. And he said, so we got there and he said, we're sitting there and just kind of begin to pray. And all of a sudden, one of our kids just gets on his knees face to the ground, and just begins to pray kind of awkwardly for everyone. But we were so moved that in time that all of a sudden, every single one of us just got on our knees, really just humiliating, right, in this metropolitan city, and just began to just begin to pray. And we began to pray, and as we began to pray, like God just began to, to stir our hearts, right, for love for this city. We began to pray, and just humbling ourselves, and all of a sudden, I don't know, after a period of time, he said, all of a sudden, I put my head up, I hear something, and there's a crowd of hundreds of people who are kind of staring at one another, kind of looking at us, and staring at one another. So, we, so I just slowly begin to stand up, and continues to pray, and then a few others stand up, and others continue on their face in prayer. And all of a sudden, we just began to proclaim the gospel, and all of a sudden, people began to like just respond. In the moment, they began to repent of their sins, and hundreds of people in this moment, all of a sudden, just began to give their lives to Jesus, and we began to worship. He said it was powerful to see three days of nothing happening. The fourth day, man, God began to move, and it was this powerful, incredible story. And I leave the moment, I'm like... God, what happened? God, what was the difference? What happened? I can't remember, but that's just how I paraphrase the memory. It was basically this. And I feel like he said, like, I feel like he said, God said this to him. Only, hear this, only in responding in the alternative to the sin of the city, which is the spirit of pride and you acting humility, was God's spirit able to move and lead people to conviction. Do you see that? Again, only in responding in the alternative to, alternative to the sin of the city was God's spirit able to move and lead people to conviction. These people that are walking in pride, right? Selfish ambition. They humbled themselves in humility, got on their faces, and it broke something in the spirit. That's what I'm talking about. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Our culture is in competition. Our culture is in rivalry. Our culture is in disunity. Our culture over here is living in anger, in factions, and in parties. And God's saying, would you just humble yourself? Would you yourself choose to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger? It's what we see. It's what we see in the life of Paul. It's so fascinating. I'll just go to the next chapter, chapter 2. So Paul over here is talking about disunity. He's challenging them. He says, guys, don't, you, don't, don't forget how I came to you. 
Don't forget the model of an ideal of my life and my actions and what I modeled for you. This is the answer. Let me read it. You can put it on the screen. Don't forget, guys, when I came to you, remember, tie in the things you've learned this morning about Corinth. I did not come with eloquence. I didn't come with human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? Not his abilities. I love this. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. I love this one, right? Think about the orator and being a speaker. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Don't you remember? I came instead with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is what he modeled. This is what he expressed. This is what he ultimately proclaimed the gospel with. I didn't come to you speaking with wise words. I didn't come to you to make a name for myself, but for Jesus. And I did not come to you with this overly religious seal of my own, my own making. I just came to you and preached to man crucified and raised from the dead. This is the urgency of the season for you. It's the urgency of the season for me. It's a unified church empowered by God's Spirit and Jesus Himself who are the hope for your kids' school, for the place where you work, for the neighborhood that you live in, for the community that we are a part of, the government that is struggling here and all on a national level too. So I just invite you to respond this morning. Unity matters. Biblically, And just super practically. And you have to begin to ask yourself, what am I doing to be a model for unity for everyone around me? Let's pray.